everyone, and welcome to Golden Walkman Magazine, the literary magazine for your ears. I am one of its editors, David Walker, uh, and with the gluttony of Thanksgiving that is November, we have our second issue of November, and it features a story by John Bacello titled The Little People. There's something that's really um, inexplicable when we read a story that connects to us, um, and be honest that's the only way I can describe my experience with this story I found myself smiling deeply by the final words and I don't think there's anything more that we can ask from literature than something like that um, so I really hope that you enjoyed the story as much as we did and it is the little people by John Bacello The Little People by John Bacello I almost slip and call him Grandpa, but catch myself before the familiarity skates off my tongue. Jack, I ask, how do you think the little people came to be there? You know, I can never figure that out, he responds in a quizzical key, and I can tell it is something to which he has given a lot of thought. We are in his room, seated on wooden chairs facing each other. His legs are crossed and his hands which are neatly folded over the knobby top of his knee, piggyback the rhythm produced by his twitching leg. I look over his shoulder at the clock on the wall. I have a bit of time before I have to drive back and pick up Johnny from school. Are you cold? My grandfather asks me, anticipating a yes, as he leans forward, about to get up and adjust the AC. No, I'm fine. You cold? Nah, I never get cold he says, batting away my suggestion with a flippant wave of his hand. The casual bravado in my grandfather's tone sounds like him. This gives me hope that more will eventually surface and emerge. You mind if I smoke? he asks, reaching toward the breast pocket of his shirt, which I know does not contain a pack of cigarettes. There's no smoking inside, Jack, I tell him. Oh, he says in a small, retreating voice, every trace of bravado gone. He returns his hand to the top of his knee, the twitch rhythm renewed. It was about a year ago when I had received a phone call from my father, telling me that Grandpa Jack was being moved into the Harborview Healthcare Center. Has it gotten that bad? I asked. Yeah, and without Marie, he can't be alone. Marie, my grandfather's second wife, had died from a heart attack several months earlier. Even before the onset of dementia, my grandfather depended on Marie as a caretaker and the domestic glue which held their house together. You need to go visit him, Suze, my father pressed upon me. You're the one who's closest to him. Geographically, it was true. I lived in Orlando, my grandfather lived in Fort Myers, and emotionally, it had been true, once upon a time. As the only girl in the family, there was my brother and my father's two brothers, both had two sons. My grandfather always treated me with a gentleness and affection which he would not or could not express with any of the boys. I was his little Angie. Even though my name was Susan, he called me little Angie because he said I was a spitting image of his first wife, my grandmother Angelina, who died when I was five. And I remained his little Angie until Jerry came into my life. When my grandfather first met Jerry, Jerry was out of work and more or less living off of me. By my grandfather's standards, no self-respecting man would ever allow such a thing to happen. That was strike one. 
Strike two came when Jerry and I were in a car accident, and Jerry was charged with drunk driving. I hadn't been hurt too bad, a concussion and several cracked ribs, but my grandfather, who was all too familiar with our family's history of drinking problems, he had quit cold turkey when he was 42, wanted me to meet someone who wasn't damned with the curse, a phrase he used often in relation to his three sons. Unlike baseball, two strikes with my grandfather and you were very much out. His opinion of Jerry, the guy's a bum and a lowlife, became a stone-set verdict. I stayed loyal to Jerry, even though my grandfather's disapproval hurt me more than I let on. It would have mattered a lot less to me if my father would have disapproved of Jerry, which he didn't, as they became drinking and gambling buddies. I knew that was because I had never been my father's sweetheart in the way that I had been my grandfather's. After Jerry and I got pregnant, then married six months later, my grandfather stopped calling me Little Angie. I became Susan to him, as I had always been to everyone else. And the warmth and sentiment which had marked our relationship had gone as well. Can I show you a photo? I asked my grandfather. Sure, sure, he says, bucking his narrow chin and smiling. My grandfather holds out his hand, the ring finger still bearing the gold band from his marriage to Marie. I produce a black and white photo from my handbag. The photo depicts my grandmother, Angelina, seated on the stoop of the house in Canarsie, where she and my grandfather had lived for many years before it burned down. She is wearing a long winter coat, a scarf bunched around its collar, her hands stuffed in the coat pockets. An inviting smile seems to have been kneaded into the doughy texture of her face. My grandfather pinches the scalloped edge of the photo between his thumb and forefinger and holds the photo eye-level, staring at it. A smile suddenly cuts across his face, but it is not a smile generated by recognition or sentiment or connectedness. It is a smile born of a benign blankness, a smile with which I have become well acquainted over the past eight weeks. Nice photo, he says, handing it back to me. Who is she? My mother, I say. Her name was Angelina. I paused, letting the name settle and perhaps take root. Then, she was an exceptional woman. I could tell, my grandfather responds with enthusiastic certainty, which I want to believe is wired to an imprint now void of context. My grandfather slides his glasses down his nose, lowers his head slightly, and repeatedly presses his thumb into the upper bridge of his nose. Are you okay? I ask him. Oh yeah, yeah, fine, he shoots back with a burst, then simultaneously lifts his head and stops thumb pressing, as if wanting to sidetrack my concern. He lets out a big yawn, then briskly slaps his palms against his thigh and asks, When are we going bowling? This is the question he asks most often. Not today, Jack, comes my pat response. He smiles boyishly and says, Ah, that's too bad, but when we go? He rises to standing and assumes the bowler's position. Slightly stooped, arms aligned, knees bent, fingers plugging the phantom bowling ball, and with fluid grace, he shimmies forward on the carpet, letting the phantom bowling ball fly. He briefly remains fixed in his follow-through position, then melts out of it and says, It would have been a strike, you know, and triumphantly pumps his fist in my direction before sitting down. Jerry had gotten a job through his cousin at a construction company in Orlando, so he moved. At the time, I was taking a break from my job as a commercial photographer, 
to be at home with our son, Johnny, who was then six months old. Even though I was reluctant to leave New York, I knew that Jerry really needed an opportunity to show he could support us. And if that opportunity happened to be in Orlando, I was willing to give it a shot. Marie, in speaking for both her and my grandfather, said they were very happy we would be living so close to them and that we had an open invitation to visit any time. When I asked Marie if my grandfather felt the same, she responded, Of course, Jack would love to have you here. The first three visits to their house were pleasant and drama-free. My grandfather was surprisingly effusive, both with me and with Johnny, and his treatment of Jerry vacillated between courteous and indifferent. Then, on the fourth visit, things fell apart. It was Thanksgiving, and prior to our arrival, Jerry had drunk his fair share. From the moment we got there, Jerry was relentless in trying to buddy up with my grandfather. This was atypical, and I could tell my grandfather was uncomfortable with Jerry's imposing friendliness. One of the topics Jerry kept coming back to, how great his job was, and how good it felt to be making money and taking care of his family. Marie would respond with cheery approval, but Marie's approval was not what Jerry was fishing for. He wanted my grandfather to pay him a compliment, pat him on the back, provide validation in some form or another. When this didn't happen, and with Jerry continuing to drink, his chummy demeanor turned dark, and I knew it was only a matter of time before everything simmering inside found its way out. Halfway through dinner, Jerry slammed down his fork and raised his voice. Would it kill you to say one good thing about me, Jack? Is that asking too much? My grandfather kept eating, his eyes fixed on the food on his plate. Sky's unbelievable, Jerry snapped, tossed his napkin on the table and shot up unsteadily from his chair. There was a wild look in Jerry's eyes as he scanned the kitchen, for what I'm not sure. Jack, Marie said imploringly, her hand laid on his arm. My grandfather chewed his food methodically, then wiped his mouth with his napkin, turned to Marie and said, What, Marie? Suze, get your stuff. We're going, Jerry ordered. Come on, Jerry, Johnny's asleep. Just sit down, I told him. I don't want to be where I'm not wanted, he barked. Jerry, that's not true, Marie said and rose to standing to support the conviction in her voice. She set her eyes on my grandfather. Jack, don't let him think that. Then on Jerry, Jerry, it's Thanksgiving. We're family. I could sense that Marie wanted to say more, but she got stranded in a thick silence. Her hands, though, continued to gesture as if the burden of unspoken words was too much to contain in stillness. I'm sorry, Marie. Thank you for having us. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to be treated like some piece of shit by your bitter prick husband. Now all eyes were on my grandfather. He swallowed the food he was chewing, calmly rose to standing, and in a clenched voice said, Get the hell out of my house. There were daggers flashing in his ice-blue eyes. Marie, I called out, her name a life preserver, which I needed to stay afloat. Suze, get Johnny, we're going, Jerry growled, then barreled out the front door. My grandfather remained a statue, albeit a trembling and reddening one. The drive home was an auditory nightmare comprised of Johnny crying and Jerry chastising me for not having stood up for him. I didn't visit my grandfather again until after Marie died. By that time, Jerry and I were divorced. The mint and pink interior of my grandfather's room makes me think of fluoride toothpaste or an aquatic setting in a Disney film. I think these colors are meant to 
soothe or pacify, but they give me a flat and expired feeling. I hear the rain like tiny fists banging against the window. I get up from my chair and go to the window, but can't see outside as the view has been obscured by sheets of rain. I go back to my chair and sit facing my grandfather, who remains quiet, distant. There are times I am at a loss as to what to say to my grandfather or how to say it. When I first started visiting him, he'd slip in and out of remembering who I was. Not anymore. I am just a good friend who comes to visit. I no longer tell him my name and he never asks. Even though my grandfather has lost conscious connection to many of the memories that make up his personal history, there is one memory, one topic, which has remained a constant. The little people. The first time my grandfather told me about the little people was nearly two months ago. We were discussing baseball when my grandfather suddenly paused and a look of puzzlement came over his face. This was the look which often preceded a slide into silent confusion or a dislocating fugue, but instead came the question, Have I ever told you about the little people? No, I said. Okay, he said, and leaned forward the position of someone about to take you into their confidence and spoke in a low voice. The little people lived inside my father's radio. There he paused and nodded his head, what seemed an invitation to something profound. I felt at odds. The man sitting before me looked exactly like my grandfather, yet his personality and behavior often did not correspond with the man I had known to be my grandfather. Was he putting me on, I asked myself, and half expected him to break from character, start laughing hysterically, and announce, Gotcha! The gotcha moment never came as my grandfather told me his story about the little people in a serious, almost reverential tone. The little people lived inside my father's RCA radiola. RCA was really big in those days. We're talking the early 30s. The one we had looked like, uh, well, looked sort of like a polished wooden cathedral. It was so beautiful and we loved listening to it. My father listened to the ball games and big band swing. My mother liked the news programs and the comedy shows. Jack Benny, Burns and Allen, Red Skelton. Those were some of her favorites. Me, I was crazy about the adventure and suspense and horror programs. At the time, I, I really didn't understand the technical concept of radio, how it worked. When I asked my father, he said, There are little people living inside the radio, Jackie. Didn't you know that? Come on, Pop, I told him. You're telling me little people live inside our radio? He kept a straight face and said, Yeah, Jackie, that's exactly what I'm telling you. The next day, I asked my father to tell me what he knew about the little people. And he said they were great mimics and performers, and there was no form of entertainment which they couldn't cover. If you needed Jack Benny, you got Jack Benny. If you needed Benny Goodman, no problem. Lone Ranger, The Shadow, Flash Gordon, the little people gave you whatever you wanted. There, my grandfather's tone shifted to self-aware as he said, Now listen, I don't want you to think I was some idiot kid who believed everything he was told. In fact, as much as I wanted to believe my father, it just seemed too impossible. Little people living inside our radio? Come on. That was my attitude until the night I saw, with my own two eyes, the little people dancing in front of the radio. Listening to my grandfather's story, I was staggered by mixed emotions. Pity, fear, sadness, shock. In a whirl, these emotions canceled each other out, and I was left in a state of agitated blankness. I didn't know what to think, or rather, I didn't want to think. 
I stayed quiet and kept listening, as if doped. I saw them dancing, my grandfather said, his blue eyes alight with wonder. It was late at night. Everyone was asleep. I got up to... I don't remember why I got up. But there they were. Four tiny people, no bigger than my child-sized thumbs, dancing in front of that polished wooden cathedral. Oh my God, I half gasped and meant it. Yeah, oh my God, exactly, my grandfather said. Four little people dancing. And you know what I did? What? Nothing. I just stood there and watched them dance. They were such wonderful dancers. Exquisite, really. And it was because of them, the way that they danced, that's why I've always been a dancer. It was true. Ever since I've known my grandfather, he is the first one on the dance floor at parties and weddings. He could cut a rug, as the saying goes, yet his nimble-footedness was not passed on to any of his three sons, none of whom danced. Then what happened, I asked, fearing that my grandfather would lose the thread of the story and slip into one of his fugues. They danced, he said, and I watched. No music coming out of the radio. The whole episode took place in silence. When they were done dancing, they made themselves even smaller and climbed back inside the radio through the tiny holes in the speakers. And that was that. Did you ever see them again? I asked. Never. Just that one time. But at least I knew my father had been telling me the truth. There were little people living inside our radio. Driving home that day with a bit of time and space between myself and the story, my rational self began to take over and dismiss the little people as the product of a faulty mind. It was a great story, and the image of the little people dancing in front of the polished wooden cathedral had lodged itself in my heart, but I reminded myself more than once that it was fiction. When I pick up Johnny from school, I see that he's got a pink welt on the outer edge of his right eye. What happened? I asked taking him by both shoulders. Stupid fight, he mumbles and shakes me off as he sullenly trudges to the car. Johnny waits in the car as his teacher, Ms. Whitefield, talks to me about the incident. Driving home, I do my best to stay calm and ask Johnny to tell me his version of the story. What happened is Paul Kandinsky's a fucking asshole, Johnny rages, not looking at me. Watch your mouth, Johnny, I warn. Johnny's gaze remained straight ahead, a pissed-off look etched on his face. In the past year, it's become the mask that he wears most often. Johnny has only visited Grandpa Jack once and didn't want to return because the old guy spooks me out. I have respected Johnny's wish not to see his great-grandfather, but on this day, when we're at home, I am firm and downright hostile when I tell him, You're not going to school on Thursday. You're coming with me to visit Grandpa Jack. Johnny raises his eyes from the Game Boy clutched in his hands and says, What? You heard me. You're staying home from school and you're coming with me to visit Grandpa Jack. Ma, he wails. Why do I got to go see this guy? He freaks me out. He doesn't even know who I am. He doesn't know who you are. Yes, he does, I snap with childish defiance. I don't believe this, Johnny says and tosses his Game Boy onto the table and storms off to his room, slamming the door behind him. I have no idea who my son is anymore, I say, and I'm unsettled by the fact that I have spoken these words aloud to no one. I have not told Johnny or anyone for that matter about the little people. Thursday, en route to Harbor View, I casually blurt out, 
Johnny, Grandpa Jack might talk to you about the little people. You say something, Johnny says, and I remember that he's wearing earphones. Grandpa Jack might talk to you about the little people, I repeat in a louder voice. Johnny clicks a button on his iPod and gives me that look which he's perfected. It's a look that asks, why is everyone around me an alien? Who are the little people, Ma? I tell Johnny the story as Grandpa Jack told it to me. You don't believe it, do you, Johnny says, poised to strip me of my ranking as sensible adult if I answer yes. I don't know, I say, and smile at Johnny to keep him or his opinion of me off balance. When we get to Harborview, my grandfather's doctor tells me that he's not in the best state today. What's wrong, I ask her. He's vexed and confused. He's been asking for Angelina. He said she was supposed to have been back hours ago to cook dinner, and he's worried about her. Ma, Johnny says and looks at me. I see clear into my son, who looks like a scared ten-year-old, which, I realize, is exactly what he is. You want to wait outside, I ask him, laying my hand on his shoulder. For now, yeah, he answers. Can I go and see him, I ask the doctor. Of course, she green lights with a gesture. I follow the doctor and leave Johnny in the waiting room, listening to his iPod. The doctor knocks lightly and half opens my grandfather's door. Jack, you have a visitor, she says. A friend. We enter the room. My grandfather looks troubled. His silver hair, which is always neatly combed, has been left untended. He's seated in a wooden chair, hands clasped awkwardly before his chest, his leg violently twitching. Hello, Jack, I say, moving closer to him. He is slow to respond to my voice, and when he does look up at me, I see a pained, wet look in his eyes. His voice cracks when he asks, Do you know when Angelina's getting back? She was supposed to have been back hours ago. I'm worried. Then he goes quiet, bows his head, and begins wringing his clasped hands. I ask the doctor if I can be alone with him, and she says, Of course, if you need me, her voice trailing off as she exits. I place the other wooden chair opposite my grandfather, as I always do, and sit down. I am in unfamiliar territory, as my grandfather has never talked about my grandmother with me during my visits. I tread cautiously. Is Angelina your wife? Yeah, yeah, she's my wife, he responds, agitated. His body seems to be collapsing inward as he continues. She's my wife, and, and she's always home by now. I've been waiting for her to get back, and... I need to call someone and find out. Who can we call, he asks, and the pained, wet look in his eyes has now traveled to his voice. Jack, I say, and delicately undo his entwined fingers, then glove his hands inside of mine. Jack, Angelina is gone, I tell him, and wonder if I'm doing the right thing or making a grievous mistake. She passed away, remember? She's gone, he says, his voice barely a whisper. You and Angelina loved each other very much, I know. Yeah, he agrees, the word curdling in his throat. Yeah, I mimic softly and keep my grandfather's hands tight inside mine as convulsive sobbing racks his entire body. This goes on for what feels like a long time and the sequence is broken when the door half opens and I see Johnny's head poke into the room. Ma, he says. Come in, Johnny, it's okay, I tell him. Johnny remains frozen, half in, half out, then slowly inches forward, closing the door behind him. 
Grandpa Jack remains slumped over, crying. I see Johnny staring at him in a distant, uncomprehending way. Jack, I say, and shake his hands vigorously. Look, you've got a visitor. A friend. Grandpa Jack remains doubled over, yet turns his head sideways to check out his visitor. Johnny remains still and silent. I can tell that he is at a loss as to how to talk to an old man whom he barely knows, crying. Grandpa Jack quickly straightens up as if commandeered by an innate sense of pride and asks me to get him a tissue. I go to the bureau, draw a tissue from the box, and hand it to Grandpa Jack. He wipes at his eyes, then blows his nose. The hot pink slowly drains from his face. Do you bowl, young man? Grandpa Jack asks Johnny. Johnny, still unable to speak, shakes his head. How about dancing? Do you dance? I... No, not really. Pep and vigor have returned to Grandpa Jack's voice as he explains. You've got to dance. Girls go crazy for guys who dance. Isn't that right? He says, turning to me, and briefly seizes up trying to attach a name to the person sitting before him, then simply repeats, Isn't that right? Definitely, I confirm. Girls love men who can dance. Johnny gives an embarrassed half-smile. Girls in that way are not something Johnny and I talk about often. Why don't you sit down? Grandpa Jack speaks with authority to Johnny. Take a load off. Johnny sits on the edge of the bed, the apex of the triangle now formed by him, Grandpa Jack, and me. Jack, I say, do you remember what it was that first made you want to dance? Oh, sure, sure, he responds, his entire face alive with recognition. He turns to Johnny. Do you know about the little people? No, Johnny says and turns to me, perhaps for reassurance. Johnny, I say, in the old days, radio was king. Right, Jack? Oh, yeah, when I was a kid, radio was king. In my home, we had an RCA radiola. And so the story is told to Johnny in pretty much the exact same way it had been told to me. The little people dancing in front of the polished wooden cathedral before disappearing, heard from but never seen again. Two months later, Grandpa Jack died. Johnny had not gone to visit him again, but he was the one who suggested what turned out to be an amazing gift for Grandpa Jack. Johnny and I had been at Toys R Us looking for a gift for Johnny's friend's birthday when Johnny came up to me holding a Fisher-Price bowling set. Hey, maybe Grandpa Jack would get a kick out of this, he said. You said he always asked about bowling, right? That Thursday when I went to see Grandpa Jack and he asked me, Are we going bowling today? I answered, well, and took the Fisher-Price bowling set out of a bag and set it on the bed. Kids bowling? He said in a voice that made my heart sink. Yet I ignored his disapproval, and in a hasty, uninterrupted sequence, I opened the box, set up the pins, and handed him the plastic bowling ball. Whatever reluctance or self-consciousness had originally gripped my grandfather went away when he rolled the ball and threw a strike. Not bad, huh? He grinned and shot me a wink. Set him up again, will you? That afternoon, my grandfather was a strike-throwing machine, not missing once. When I bowled, I did okay, and my grandfather would stop me from time to time and work with me on my form and release. He did this in a patient and confident manner. When I threw my first strike, Grandpa Jack high-fived me, and I could feel the little people inside me dancing. I didn't want them to stop. So the story, The Little People, was 
born out of a, a story that happened in my childhood or a memory, a very specific memory that I had of when my grandmother, when my father's mother had died. And it might have been two, one or two weeks after her death. And my grandfather was kind of a stoic man who didn't uh, wear his emotions on his sleeves, didn't really cry at the funeral or didn't, as far as I remember, or hearing, remember hearing that he didn't have much of an emotional reaction. And I do remember him coming over the house one day and being really, really surprised that his wife wasn't there. And he started asking my mother and father, where is, uh, where's Annie? Why isn't she home? She's supposed to be at home cooking dinner. She's always home at whatever time it was, five o'clock or six. And I remember that he really, really believed this. I found it so strange. It was one of my first memories that something that wasn't true or that was not part of reality could uh, grip the mind. And seeing that in my grandfather, you know, my father really didn't know how to handle the situation. And my mother had to explain to him that there had been a funeral and that she was dead. And then my realization kind of hitting my grandfather and he started crying and my mother consoled him. And it was a memory, again, that always stuck with me about the mind, the tricks that could be played on us by our minds or how they can go defective or faulty and create an entirely different reality or, or void a reality. So anyway, that was part of the memory. And the other thing is I'm a personally a huge fan of radio and radio theater. And so that kind of worked its way into the story. And I feel like at some point in my life, somebody had told me or I had read somewhere about little people living inside the radio, or maybe it was something I just imagined. And I always had this vision of these little people who are just incredible mimics and performers that wherever you tuned, whatever station you tuned to or whatever it was that you were seeking in regards to entertainment these little people could um, generate that entertainment so all of those elements combined in uh, the creation of this story the little people again hope you enjoyed that story uh, by John Bacello. To read about him and all of our other contributors, please visit our website at goldwalkmag.com and find out how you can become a contributor too. We're always looking for fresh new material. Um, so send us anything you think uh, we'd like. We should also be rolling out a new website in December that allows us to put the issues directly on the website. So stay tuned for that. And please help us spread the word. Uh, we're on Facebook. Twitter, the usual social media stuff, and uh, if you rate and review us, that can definitely help uh, us continue bringing this uh, fine content to the world. So thanks again, and until next time.